Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Hi, and welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy Middleton. This week on Women on the Line, we continue our mini-series on sex and culture, in which we investigate how cultural and social contexts can impact women's attitudes to sex and sexuality. This week I speak to Dr. Tanache Dune. Tanache is an academic from the Shona Language Group in Zimbabwe, whose research, teaching and publications focus on sexual marginalisation. Tanache completed a Bachelor of Arts with Honours in Psychology in Canada in 2007, and her doctoral thesis was on sex and cerebral palsy at the University of Sydney in 2011. Currently, Tanache works at the University of Western Sydney, where she co-convenes the university's LGBTI ally network. Tanache has also been involved in Sydney's Sex Worker Outreach Program, providing support to sex workers from various backgrounds, and acted as a disability support worker for several years in Canada. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Women on the Line. We're here with Tanache June. Uh, thanks so much for being on Women on the Line, Tanache. Thank you. Um, to begin with, you have a pretty varied and diverse um, cultural background and, and context. Can you just talk us through um, how you identify culturally and what your sort of upbringing has been like? Yeah, sure. Um, it is quite complicated because I guess I'm a bit of a citizen of the world. Um, <laughs> but um, I was born in Zimbabwe and um, I lived there until I was about two or three years old. And then my parents... Um, decided that, you know, we would move to the UK, so we ended up going there for a while, and then ended up in the United States, and I did preschool there, and um, then my parents applied for citizenship, and we were denied. Um, So most people are thinking, so then why do you sound the way that you do? Well, (laughs) we ended up in Canada, (laughs) and that's where we ended up getting citizenship, Mm. and lived in Canada, so started off in Canada. northwestern Ontario in a very small, very white town called Sudbury, Um, and we were one of the very few migrant, uh, let alone black families in the area, so that was quite interesting growing up. Mm. Um, And then we moved to Toronto. My mom uh, lost her job because she didn't speak French, so in Canada um, there's two official languages, French and English, Um, and so... She couldn't speak French, and so she ended up uh, getting ousted. And that was one of the uh, major experiences for her, which shaped our lives, uh, myself and my sister and my brother, um, because at that stage I was in grade 5 and my sister was in grade 7, and we went into all French schools, so French immersion. So we began to learn in French immediately in order to avoid um, having that situation occur again um, mm. later down the track. So my mother was quite, um, I guess, forward-thinking in that respect. Um, and at the time, um, 
you know, people said, well, you know, neither my mother or father were French, so it's going to be too hard. We're not going to accept the children. And my mother said, well, let them fail, and then you can say you were right. And we ended up being at the top of the class. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, yeah, in your face. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) Um, And then um, ended up um, going to Ottawa to do my first degree in psychology, and then um, ended up moving to Australia and doing my Ph.D., and um, then started working and got permanent residency. And as of May 18th, I'm an Australian citizen. So um, now I would say I'm African-Canadian-Australian, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and um, uh, my husband is an Aboriginal man, and uh, we have a lovely 11-month-old daughter who... You know, um, it would be quite interesting to see how she identifies when mm. she grows up as well. <laughs> yeah, it is a it's um it's a complex identity. Um, so your research is often centered around sexuality, gender studies, psychology. Um, why the focus on sex, and how do you reckon your cultural experiences have impacted your attitudes to sex? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, one of the things that I noticed as I was kind of going through adolescence and puberty is that the way that my parents understood sexuality um, and sexual and reproductive health and issues around that were very different from what I was learning in a Western context. So um, what ended up happening is there was often a clash. Um, And, you know, I'm sure kids around the world, whether their parents are, you know, fundamentally from somewhere else or from, you know, Western context, have that clash with their parents. But this was particularly um, different because we had no way of meeting in the middle. And, you know, my parents grew up in uh, what used to be Rhodesia and then what turned into Zimbabwe. Mm. And the traditional cultural understandings, as well as the, you know, colonial, patriarchal, and quite um, strict uh, and Christian values Mm. in regards to sexuality that they carry um, were very different from the Western sexuality of, you know, the late 90s and 2000s. So uh, it was quite interesting to me as I aged as to why, why is this happening? Why is it that we really don't get each other in this respect and that, I am fundamentally transgressing some of the basic ideals that they have about sexuality um, in a way that I I didn't even know I was doing that because, you know, I'm growing up in a Western setting and I'm doing what the other kids are doing. I'm going to the mall and going to the movies and hanging out with girlfriends and having sleepovers and talking to boys. And this is not on at all in a more traditional Zimbabwean context, which has heavy flavorings of Christianity. Um, so, so we fought a lot between my parents and I, and so I, as I as I aged and you know got into the PhD and following that, I thought there's something going on here, and it's not just my parents and I don't get each other because you know I was a teenager. It seemed as though as I started to talk to other people, that there seemed to be this element of culture clash, that there's this intergenerational issue that seems to happen when people migrate. And there's a lot of services out there for when people migrate, Mm. you know, financial services, social services, health literacy. There's a lot of things out there. But what I've noticed is that there really isn't a lot of information to help parents and children bridge the cultural gap between them. Mm. 
Mm. Because the children are fundamentally something else, right? So my parents might perceive themselves as fully or mostly African and possibly a bit of Canadian as well. But for myself, I have a more, um, I guess, mixed-up identity that happens to be more Western, which um, is very different. So I think that's where I I started um, from a very personal note, trying to figure out what is this thing, sexuality, and why is it such a big deal, especially across cultures and varying experiences? And have you worked out, have you worked that out? <laughs> I think I have pinpointed the issue yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of how to fix it. That's still a work in process. But I think, as I mentioned, the fundamental issue is that I think it's fantastic that we um, are open to every different type of person and diversity and multiculturalism. That's amazing. And in the process of doing that, we also need to make sure that once people, you know, do arrive or do get to their destination, that they have services that allow them to, you know, build strong and happy relationships within their culture and within their families, as well as with, you know, other people um, around them. So, you know, strong families makes a huge difference to education outcomes, makes a huge difference to health outcomes, reduces teen pregnancy, increases, you know, well-being and reduces anxiety and depression. So there's so many things that um, are linked to a simple, I guess, My simple suggestion is that we really also need to take a look at how parents and children move along in their migration trajectory um, so that they are more on the same page. And those type of things would have to happen in the community, not an outside approach of saying, you must do this. That never works for anyone ever. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, how do we mobilize the community to support one another, and obviously to reinforce some of those cultural values, which are important to people, so so that they don't lose identity, and you know they don't end up being, you know, questioning who am I in the end of it all. So you mentioned um, that there were there was a big gap between um, the ideals of sexuality according to your parents um, yeah. and yourself. What what were the, some of the key sort of gaps in which um, that occurred? I think one of the things I noticed really early on is um, the uh, how how girls movement and engagement in social activities is restricted okay um, so in Shona traditional culture which at the moment has a heavy flavor of um, Christianity or Catholicism um, and in many cultures, this is this is the way that it is, and sometimes in Western settings as well, mm. is that girls um, seem to be more precious or are constructed as more precious beings and therefore need to be uh, protected or need to be um, watched or supervised or monitored more than perhaps boys would be. Mm. Um, and there still is some monitoring that goes on for boys in many cultures, but for girls in general, it seems to be that um, they have the higher level of surveillance and that girls um, are the arbiters of um, sexual activity such that they must be the ones to abstain. They must be the ones to ensure that, you know, they're not touched or that they don't engage in, you know, um, particular behavior. So boys don't necessarily get as much of that message so it's the girls who must say stop, or the girls who must say no, or the girls who must adhere to abstinence. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do that, 
you don't go out past a certain time, which mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, fair across all cultures. Most people say that children shouldn't go out past a certain time. But for girls, it was just a few hours earlier. And so if, for instance, my friends in um, Canada were going out and we were coming back before nightfall or, you know, before, you know, 8 o'clock, I had to be back by 5, not by 8, because it was, you know, particularly um, taboo um, and not very respectful to be out past a certain hour. Or having sleepovers, for instance, I wasn't allowed to have them. Um, or to necessarily go over to have sleepovers because it was difficult to surveil mm. exactly what was going on, what conversations were happening. Um, so the first time I went to a movie, I was uh, almost 17 years old right. before I actually went out to a movie theater. I was allowed to go to a movie theater. Meanwhile, you know, my friends had been going since they were you know, 10, 11, 12 mm. with the other girls. So it was uh, things in that nature where... You know, it was really important to my parents to impress upon me that um, I shouldn't be engaging in these Western practices, which are fundamentally, uh, in in their eyes at the time, I think they've changed their minds since then, but at the time, that we're opening oneself up to promiscuity. And what's... That was a, it's like, you know, going to the movies was a gateway drug okay. to <laughs> promiscuity. And what sort of impact um, do you think... That this cultural context has on women's sexual identities. Um, well, from some of the research that I've done so far, talking to Shona Zimbabwean women who have migrated to Australia, um, part of that is that you know when we ask them what is the role of women in Shona culture, and what they said was their role was to be a wife and to be a mother, and you know in many contexts that's not very different. Um, but they really, you know, impressed upon us in regards to sexuality that they were um, to make sure that they <sighs> pleased their husbands, that that was their job, that they must please their husband whether they wanted to or not, mm. um, and that in some instances um, that even if someone didn't want to, then you would just have to lie back and look at the stars, essentially, and right. just, you know, hope that it, it's over as quickly as possible. Um, so that was, that came out quite strongly in terms of women become a vehicle for sexual pleasure or desire for men, um, and that that's part of their role. And so when we ask these women, okay, well, what is the man's role then? I mean, perhaps one would say then that it's exactly the, the opposite, that he's there to please you and to be you know, your sexual vehicle as well. And they were like, oh, no, they laughed like, you know, um, it, it was it, it was, it, it was the most ridiculous thought in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things that we found in the research is that they used laughter quite a bit in order to kind of, um, you know, push it aside, you know, like when you just kind of laugh something off. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly how that was. So clearly the the way that women's sexuality was constructed was very different to that of men. And then this kind of goes back to this perception, perhaps, that boys don't need to be surveilled, and boys will be boys. They can do what they please. Or, And, you know, maybe fundamentally that comes to the fact that, you know, women can fall pregnant. And mm-hmm. in order to prevent that from happening outside of, you know, when somebody actually really wants it to, then 
girls need to be surveilled and protected. But in the end, it, it seemed as though these women who are over the age of 30, 40, were really saying that, well, you know, it's not really fair because it's not about experiencing their sexuality or desire. Um, because if they did do that, even with their husbands, for some women, they felt that they would be presumed to be a bit promiscuous, even with their own husband, to say, well, can you mm. do this, or I like that. You know, the question would be, where did you learn that? How do you know that? Only, you know, essentially only a slut would have that information. Mm. I mean, the use of laughter um, is a really interesting one because it sort of suggests to me that there isn't a real sense of heaviness or um, a sense of loss um, for something among these women and their attitudes. Um, I think, I think, I think there is, and I think this is a coping mechanism. I okay. think this is actually um, an indication of resilience. Yeah. Um, because instead of, um, I guess, mourning the or really um i guess falling into some of that negative um emotional and and they have every right to it of course they just kind of think oh you know boys will be boys it's all funny we're all here as women struggling ah you know it's okay hey hey, hey. <laughs> and then you know everybody laughs and that's it and you know it's kind of like a communal um support by mm. sitting with other women, and you just kind of laugh because you know everyone else is going through it as well. Because mm. we did these um, this research in focus groups, so we had many Shona women in the room, and as we know with focus groups, people you know feed off of each other in order to develop and um, give give data for the research, and that was part of what they did. And many times, actually, I said, "Why are you laughing?" I actually were, were asked them, why are you laughing? And they're like, ah, it's just too much, so you laugh. So it, it seemed to be a coping mechanism mm. and um, a way to deal with loss and mourning okay. in a way that, would, um, that, that wouldn't, I guess, uh, absolve or that, that wouldn't necessarily take away their resilience. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I yeah. know it's like really... You know, it's like some people would cry, but, you know, they would laugh. Yeah, it's almost the same response. It's just That's kind right. of its opposite. Absolutely. So you laugh in order to take a more positive stance on the things that are paining you. And how about, I mean, what about the the impact on you personally? Was this something that was hard to fight, or did you sort of see it for what it was as a young person growing up? Um, I think because... You know, like I said, when I'm growing up in a place where there are very few migrants and very few people of the same cultural background, it's actually quite easy to disconnect yourself from your traditional culture or from your, you know, native birth culture. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that's a good thing in okay. many ways um, because there are things that are fundamentally lost in that that one can never get back. But, you know, um, it's kind of the thing where there's strength in numbers. So I had a lot of other people who did the same things that I wanted to do mm -hmm. and that were setting the the bar. They were the threshold against which I would, I guess, um, you know, value or, you know, test myself. Mm. Because, you know, you want to be like your peers, and there's so many more of them than your parents. 
And my sister was part of that peer group, and my brother was born in Canada, so he didn't really know very much about, you know, the Shona culture. So in a way, and it's actually quite sad, my parents were outnumbered. Mm. And um, I think that caused them, now later in life I see that that caused them a significant amount of distress because then it starts within yourself. You have culture shock. Who am I? Am I not good enough? How about my culture? Where am I... It, it it calls into question some fundamental aspects of who you are, and I can imagine how psychologically distressing that would be, especially when these people you've created turn against you in mm. some way. So, uh, you know, in hindsight, I feel very empathetic towards my parents, uh, but they were outnumbered. They had they didn't have a chance. Yeah. So you mentioned that their ideas on sexuality um, may have shifted. Mm-hmm. Do you think how where how and when did that happen? Um, I think, yeah, that would be, that's a very good question. When did that happen? When I went to university, um, I uh, so I, I my parents were still in Toronto at that time, and I went to Ottawa, so I wasn't living with them. Mm-hmm. And I think um, for them, it was kind of a moment where they they couldn't hold on to me anymore because I was gone. And it's not, you know, and I guess the question that they had to obviously ask themselves is, I mean, do you hold someone at home when they have a great opportunity for education? And my parents, education was number one. Out of anything ever in the world, education was their, uh, the, the thing that they always um, instilled in us. So they thought, okay, well, off she goes. And I think in that moment, uh, my parents, especially my mother, was like, well, you know, I would hope I taught her well enough and there's nothing I can do. Mm. And I remember there was this one instance um, and at this time, time, I was still has still had the fear of God of my parents in me, and I was 22 years old, and um, I had um, a situation with this uh, with this guy that I was dating, and you know uh, we had a, a condom mishap, and mm. I became very frightful about that, and I thought, who do I talk to? Oh God, I have uh, I don't know who to talk to, and I called my mother. Now. I mean, you would think you called your mother of all the people in the world to call <laughs> when something like this is happening. You know she's going to cuss you out. You know <laughs> it's going to be some drama about, I told you so. You see what happened. This is what is going to happen if you're going to do those things. Okay, so <laughs> it's like somewhere in your head you know that this is going to happen. And it's almost like you want to hear your mother say that she was right. Um, there's some comfort in that. Yeah, there's somehow there's some strange comfort in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a sucker for punishment or something. Who knows? But she was the person I called, and I was ready for the onslaught, and almost like I needed to hear it as in, you know, that's the thing that um, would really show me that I should have listened. And um, so she answered the phone, and I told her the story, and she said, and I was waiting for it, and she said, it's okay. And I was like, what? (laughs) And she said, it's okay. These things happen. You just need to go and do this, and you need to do that, and you need Mm. to do that. You need to stop freaking out. The likelihood of, you know, STI or pregnancy or whatever. And she went through the whole thing. And at the end of it, she's like, you'll be okay. You know, tell me what happens when you go to the doctor, et cetera. Call me back, and I love you. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What just happened? (laughs) But it was, it was almost like, you know, my mother would give us all the warnings and all the fear of God. But when it came to the crunch, 
you know, she was there and supportive and non-judgmental and very calm and collected and knew what to do. And I, I realized in that moment that it, perhaps all the things that she was saying obviously were true in terms of, you know, you should protect yourself and you, you know, shouldn't, you know, be promiscuous and that type of stuff. But then also that, you know, she she was there and supportive. And then I realized something really had changed. Mm. Something was very different. And from that moment on, you know, she just never really was preachy about the whole thing. <laughs> it was really quite interesting. Mm. And very real, and it and it and and that stayed with me for, you know, up till now. Parents can surprise you at times. Yes, <laughs> and I think you then realize that my goodness, this is another human being. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, they're not this um, demigod somewhere that mm. <laughs> runs my life. This is another human being, and they get it. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about your. Um your involvement in the Ally Network at um, the University of Western Sydney and yeah. and your involvement in uh, sex worker outreach programs. What drew you to these two things? Yeah, so I think in, you know, trying to understand experiences of marginalization and sexuality, and I have quite a number of friends who um, identify as um, gay and lesbian and um, some who are going through some uh, transgender transitions. And um, I I found it quite comforting when speaking to them about their experiences of marginalization. And there were a lot of things that I could say, yeah, me too, Mm. and other things where I thought, wow, that's interesting. I've, you know, never um, really thought about it that way. And some of their experiences where I thought, that's just not fair. I mean, fundamentally for me at the end of the day, when it comes to um, people who have, I guess, the non-binary male-female woman, man, or, you know, heterosexual experiences, it's kind of like, who cares? Like, it's, you know, when I'm at work and I'm teaching or I'm having a meeting, it really doesn't matter to me whether the person across the table happens to have a same-sex partner. That's so irrelevant. Mm. Um, and so I think it really appealed to my, um, my desire for social justice. Um, that there are some things in the world that are just unfair and it doesn't make any sense. For instance, you know, um, I identify as a black person and it's annoying when someone chooses not to sit beside me on the bus because, you know, I might perceive a sense of prejudice. I find that annoying. It's unreasonable. Mm. Similarly, it's unreasonable to, you know, call someone names based on their sexuality. It just seems ridiculous to me. Mm. So... That's where I kind of come from in regards to Ally. And so I thought, well, you know, being an advocate for people who um, go through these experiences um, and to eventually prevent these experiences from happening, especially in a university setting where fundamentally it doesn't matter whether someone is identifying or experiencing um, these things. So, um, yeah, one of the things that um, last year I got involved in was putting on the university's first float in the um, Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very exciting, got various levels of university from the um, vice chancellor all the way down to students um, and all the way through to staff and all the way through to um, professional admin people to actually participate and to give money and to march yeah. in the parade. And uh, we took 
tons of pictures and put them up on our Facebook page. And within minutes, we had, you know, 600 and something likes. And students saying, it is so good to see my universities actually accepting people and actually, you know, internalizing and institutionalizing acceptance. It's one thing when universities have on a web page, yay, we accept people. Yay, diversity. Yay, inclusion. Well, then what are you going to do? Mm. So it's it's this was one of those um, opportunities to be involved in proving it. Yeah, this is how we will you know prove it. So that and we're going to have it bigger and better um, next year. So that's really exciting. Um, and you know, like I said, marginalization and social justice are things that I'm quite interested in. So the sex worker outreach program. Um, so when I was um, doing my PhD. I would go over there and, you know, help wrap up condoms because um, sex workers would come and get these workers' packs to obviously, you know, ensure their health and obviously the health of others. And so there's lube and condoms and, you know, sit there packing, packaging um, condoms and whatnot. And um, during my Ph.D., there was actually um, a couple people who uh, were sex workers who were doing their research on sex work and people with disability. And... Um, I thought, my goodness, that's also an area in which people are often not um, acknowledged, mm. is that, you know, if if society has constructed people with disability as asexual or as not attractive, but sexuality, as the World Health Organization indicates, is a fundamental aspect of humanity and is a human right, well, there is a gap that's there. So, you know, the sex worker outreach program helps sex workers to link with various people to make sure they maintain health, and mm-hmm. which is a, a, a fantastic thing. So I also went out to uh, Western Australia and went to – because in Western Australia there's a, a number of areas that are um, big mining areas. So you have fly-in, fly-out workers. Um, and so there really isn't much there except for some pubs, and there's quite a number of sex workers, um, which is great so that people can have some company. Mm-hmm. And so went to the pubs, handed out condoms, talked to sex workers, talked to the miners as well. Um, so that was quite interesting. Um, so as you can see, I'm you know really interested in the overall aspect of social justice and sexuality um, because it seems as though there are marginalized populations and um, it's not really fair. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not reasonable or rational as to why they're treated so poorly. So you do have quite a broad um, reach in terms of your research and interest, don't you? <laughs> yes, I mean, it's, it's, which is quite good in in a sense. I had this guy from Alaska send me an email after he had read some of my research on disability, and um, he said, you know, your your name keeps coming up in all my searches of how <laughs> effed up my life is, <laughs> and uh, his wife um, is living with cerebral palsy, and he says, you know, your stuff is the most recent, and your stuff is the most prolific, and he says, I have to say, it's very frank and on the money. Oh, good. And I was like, wow, I mean, you can get as many academic citations as you want, and as many publications, but that is the most rewarding thing to hear, that mm. it's actually getting to the people who actually want to hear it, who I'm talking to and about. So that was really powerful. Yeah, because it's... I felt good about that. Yeah, <laughs> understandably, because it it's difficult to bridge that gap between academia and uh, people or the people in That's question. That's right, exactly. Um, Absolutely. Before we wrap up, I wanted to um, ask you... What, what, which ideas on sexuality from your various cultural contexts um, have you held on 
to 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 the present day. Are there are there aspects of your parents' ideas on sexuality, um, perhaps your husband's um, people's ideas on sexuality? Have you do do you identify with a mishmash of them? I think I identify with a, a mishmash to some degree. Uh, I think I'm um, quite feminist um, in some ways, um, especially when it comes to, you know, I, I feel that women should have a say in um, their sexuality in terms of not just about, you know, um, avoidance of coercion or, you know, not being abused, but, you know, in terms of saying this is what I like and this is what I don't like and mm. not being afraid to do that. I mean, society makes us afraid as women to really say this is what I want for fear of perhaps being perceived in a certain way. Um, and really loving oneself and one's own body as a really uh, sexy, fundamental piece of their sexual identity. Now, in saying that, I guess um, I also love things like high heels and I love things like corsets and mm. I love things that are really, that some people might really think of as anti-feminist. Um, so it, it is a mishmash, definitely. But in, in terms of perhaps the cultural influence, you know, one of the things my parents um, used to say is that, you know, you don't just want to give it away to anybody. You know, <laughs> don't treat it like it's something to lose. Like it's this awful thing in terms of virginity. It's this awful thing that you're just carrying around. And they really hated the Western ideology of you lose it to someone, like as if someone takes it away from you. Yeah. And so they would say, just don't give it away. You need to share it with someone, you know, that you really feel respects you. And I think, you know, as a kid, I always thought, oh, my parents are trying to restrict me. I can't do what I want. And this is, you know, really annoying. But Later on, I really realized that perhaps what they're asking is, you know, respect myself such that someone else um, will respect me as well. And in saying that, don't just, you know, fall into peer pressure and just, you know, have sex because. But really think, is this person, do they value me? Mm. Am I, what, what am I to them? Am I just an object that they're going to enjoy and then that's the end? And sometimes that's all it is and that's fair enough. But what my parents were saying is, are you going to be the all and everything for that person? And I think I've really continued to carry that, especially now that I have my own daughter. I think, you know, I would want her to choose someone who really respected her and who really felt like they were sharing that experience with her, not taking it from her, not her losing it. Okay. Um, and I guess in terms of my, my husband's Aboriginal background, um, I think it's very similar as well that he is a fiercely loyal person and he has always said, you know, come hell or high water, it's it's really a matter of that emotional respect, psychological respect, fundamental respect that you have for that person. Because, I mean, love in a marriage that goes long term, anyone will know, comes and goes. <laughs> but if you fundamentally respect someone then you you can make it through. So that, that idea of respect um, seems to really resonate with me mm. after all these years. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tinashe. Um, so earlier in the recording we heard um, some music which you chose, yes. um, the Imbira, which is a thumb piano made of steel um, that's uh, originated in Zimbabwe. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so can you talk us through um, a little bit about why this sound or this instrument is important to you? Um, 
I mean, this, the mbira is used in um, a number of areas in the, I guess, um, southern sections of Africa, and you know, particularly resonant in Zimbabwe. And it's such a beautiful, organic, lovely, um, and what some would say is a very feminine sound. Um, it's it's very light but very powerful, and um, in modern times, women often use it um, in their music to walk down the aisle for weddings. Um, and it's often used in celebrations that women would participate in, mm. like uh, birthdays or childbirth or becoming a grandmother, um, those type of things. So it's it's quite linked to a spirituality and sacredness of uh, of of women um, and of the Zimbabwean people. So um, when you when you listen to it, it's 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 this type of sound that kind of makes you think of uh, a more spiritual or uh, a deeper connectedness to the sense of, you know, maybe Mother Earth or Gaia in some way. Okay. That it's that it's really it's really feminine and there's something really womanly about it and and not in a um, in a negative sense as in women are soft, but something about it re- being really it's a nurturing sound. Um, so I think, you know, when people kind of listen to it, they'll, they'll enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and if uh, listeners would like to look up more of your work, they can go to the University of Western Sydney staff profiles page and look up Dr. Tanache Dune. Thank okay. you so much for being on Women on the Line. Thank you so much, Amy. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. We're so grateful to Dr. Tanache Dune for talking us through her experiences and also for selecting the music we heard, which was a song called Rebel Woman, sung in English and Shona by Zimbabwean singer Chiwaniso. I'm Amy Middleton. Thanks for joining me for another edition of Women on the Line. See you next time. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Programme. It's produced and presented by a range of women at 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. Women on the Line can be downloaded from our website, womenontheline.org.au or download the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash podcast. I'm Amy Middleton. Tune in next time for another edition of Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.